The New Kansas Speaks survey of public opinion generated by the Docking Institute of Public Affairs at Fort Hayes State University is out. It checks the pulse of Kansans on dozens of issues, a list that ranges from views on public officials, the economy, guns, abortion, election security, housing, health care, education, and climate change. Here to mind some of the numerical nuggets from the survey are Brett Zollinger, director of the Docking Institute at Fort Hayes, his colleague at the Institute, Jen Sun, as well as Michael Smith of Emporia State, Alexandra Middlewood of Wichita State, and Patrick Miller of the University of Kansas. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Brett, let's begin with a concise explanation of what Kansas Speaks actually is. And if you will, was there anything about this year's survey results that stuck out to you? Well, thank you, Tim. Um, sure, sure uh, appreciate you having us uh, on the research team that is responsible for Kansas Speaks every year. I guess I would just offer a few remarks about why we do this. Um, the Docking Institute of Public Affairs looked around the state in about 2008 and said, you know, we don't have any kind of uh, public opinion polling on a regular basis that touches on various issues of public affairs that um, we hear uh, often debated and uh, voted upon in Topeka during our legislative sessions. So we said, let's start doing something like that. And and we certainly weren't the first in the country to do this. Many such polls exist in other states. Um, and so what we've done is over time, since 2009, we have had a set of questions that are fairly perennial, where we we measure um, Kansans' attitudes about some quality of life issues and also attitudes toward their elected officials and elected bodies. But then we also have um, a large section of our questionnaire reserved annually for contemporary uh, public affairs items. And we feel it's important to bring those uh, items to uh, the attention of legislators, but also, you know, fellow Kansans, um, so that everyone can see what uh, others in the state are thinking. I guess I'm going to mention again that uh, Medicaid expansion will almost certainly be talked about this this, uh, legislative session. And once again, we, we find high support for Medicaid expansion in the state. It's at about 72 percent um, this this year, which is re- really close to what it was last year, about 73 percent, I, I think. Um, and both of these years are up about 10 percent from the prior two years, so 2019 and 20 on that. Um, part of the reason people support it, I think, is um, they largely agree that uh, it'll help rural hospitals in the state. And uh, they also agree that people who qualify for Medicaid ex- are deserving of it. Um, both of those items uh, achieving two-thirds and up to 75% on, on the, the uh, agreement that it will help rural hospitals. The other thing I would point out is this year we added a, a, a series of questions, quite a few questions about in, um, engagement with and perceptions about institutions of higher education. And we measured institutions um, at the vocational technical level, community college level, and the university level. Um, in those, in all three of those levels, we're seeing high support for uh, higher education in terms of its ability to uh, help with workforce development, research and design that will be beneficial to business and industry, and also um, econ- overall economic development. We had 80% and more agreeing um, that all three of those levels will help in those three different regards. And then finally, I would mention that um, Kansans also believe that those levels of education all contribute to 
um, the quality of civic life in the state, with over 70% agreeing that it or, or feeling that it's very important or important that all three of those levels are contributing to the civic life in Kansas. Patrick Miller, I know there are lots of numbers in the 2022 survey, but can you talk about a prominent finding? Uh, I might give you two, depending upon how fast I go to the first one. Um, I think I'll start with abortion. Um, you know, a little bit of background. So I started commenting on or writing about abortion attitudes in Kansas back in 2017, 2018. And in the survey that we did for Kansas Speaks last year, I wrote this new set of questions that fortunately was included uh, that I think gave us some more detail on how Kansas feel about abortion rights. And, and I think if there's one piece of feedback that I heard for the last five years before the amendment vote in August was it was from people who did not believe that most Kansans favored the fundamental right to abortion access. I mean, sure, plenty of them support restrictions. But I think from where I'm sitting, the most vocal feedback was from people who just didn't believe that. You know, there's no way Kansans could support abortion rights. Uh, we saw it reflected in the survey last year that, in fact, most Kansans did support that basic right. And, of course, we know how the August Amendment turned out. I think in, in thinking about the abortion questions this year, and I contributed some of those, one way that I wanted to go with that was to add some new questions that really get at where abortion bans are going. Um, you know, for right now, we're not going to have an abortion ban in Kansas, but I think a lot of supporters of that ban have made it clear that they're going to continue to work towards that, likely through changing how judges are selected. And I think one thing that's missing from public opinion surveys to a large degree right now is these questions that ask us about the nuts and bolts of enforcing these bans. So, for example, who's going to pay for prosecuting women and doctors? How willing would you be to report a woman who has an abortion? Questions like that, that if you think about if, you ha- if you're going to ban abortion, you're going to prosecute people and you're going to have punishments. Uh, what are those going to be? And so it was interesting for me to see in this survey that most Kansans are not interested in reporting a woman or a doctor who has an illegal abortion. Some, of course, were, but most were not. Um, I also thought the funding attitudes were interesting. Uh, you know, when we prosecute state-level crimes, it's typically the counties that pay for the prosecution of those crimes. You know, local prosecutors are making decisions. Typically, those crimes are prosecuted in more local courts. But most Kansans uh, prefer that the state take on um, the cost of paying for those prosecutions, which is interesting because that's not typically how abortion bans are going to be enforced in many of the states that surround us. So I hope that as we go forward, we can continue, especially as we see more of our neighbors banning abortion and having prosecutions, um, get better data on exactly how that's panning out to see how people feel. And I'll also add um, one thing that in particular I contributed this year was the, uh, some of the questions around election integrity, election security. Um, I've never seen that really polled in Kansas before or, or even much detail in many other states. It was interesting to me to see that most Kansans feel that we generally do have um, you know, safe and secure elections in the state. Um, I was actually most interested by the 
the percentage of people who didn't have an opinion, um, which I think probably reflects just maybe not a lot of knowledge about how elections are run. But I think even though we see that Kansans mostly trust our election process, I think we have to square that with how these attitudes often get meshed out in reality. I mean, take, for example, the Republican primary for a secretary of state where an election denier who called for violence and war against Democrats and liberals in 2020 took 45 percent in the secretary of state's primary. So I think, you know, people have these attitudes that our elections are safe, our elections are secure, but then how these attitudes are going to get translated into electoral politics and policy attitudes when partisanship is a lot more evident, I think is a different creature. But it's useful to have this base of this, this measurement base for how people feel about elections in our state. Jen Sun, it's your turn. What came to the forefront in your mind as you helped pull together this year's survey results? Uh, I'll just comment on a few things on the uh, perennial questions we ask every year. And one thing that is uh, very salient uh, this year is that uh, people's perception of the economy uh, kind of declined uh, as compared to last year. And we have several questions asking about people's perception on the economy. And uh, the, uh, as you can see, the percentage of the people uh, seeing Kansas economy was excellent or very good, uh, dropped from uh, about 21% to uh, last year to uh, 16% this year. And also uh, almost half of uh, Kansas said, said Kansas economy is getting worse. And uh, in 2021, it was 33%. And also a a larger percentage of people uh, become uh, more uh, concerned about their uh, family welfare uh, as compared with last year. Uh, However, uh, although the perception of the Kansas economy uh, are, are lower than in 2021, but we notice about two-thirds of the respondents still saying that uh, Kansas is on the right track. And this has remained uh, very steady during the past three years. So I think we can interpret this as uh, people were largely optimistic about the future of the state. Um, the other thing I want to uh, point out is that we asked about uh, people's satisfaction with uh, a few uh, elected political figures and uh, uh, government bodies. And uh, people's satisfaction with Governor Kelly had been always the highest among all those uh, uh, political figures and uh, government bodies. And uh, the percentage of people seeing satisfactory uh, with uh, uh, Governor Kelly uh, is about or close to 50%. Uh, in the past uh, three years. And people's satisfaction with Kansas legislature was uh, always about 30%, and uh, the satisfaction with Supreme Court uh, never exceeded 35%. Alexandra, a highlight from the survey of 500 people conducted in September and October? Um, So for this year's survey, the questions that I really wanted to have included um, were questions about various types of gun control um, or gun restrictions. And this was on the 2019 survey, or the 2019 survey did have some of these questions included. Um, we did expand that this year and included 10 different policies 
um, of various types of gun control. And we found that every measure had majority support from the respondents of this survey. Um, some differences that we saw between 2019 and the 2022 survey is that there was actually lower support this year for background checks or expanding background checks, um, though the 2022 question was more specific on that. Um, so the 2019 survey just asked about background checks in general. The 2022 specifically mentioned having background checks on private sales and gun show sales. Um, so we did see some lower support for that one. Um, we did see higher support, considerably higher support, for requiring gun owners to be 21 years or older to purchase a firearm. Um, so that was one we saw increased support for. Uh, most of the other measures that we had from 2019 to 2020 stayed about the same. Um, though we did add a question about teachers carrying guns at school, um, specifically if they had been trained to do so. And this had the lowest support of all of the gun control measures um, that we asked about, though it was still a majority. So about 53% of respondents did say that teachers who are trained to do so should carry guns at school. Um, and this is not, or the responses to these questions are not necessarily driven by people who are anti-gun. Um, so for the first time, we added a question to measure gun ownership on this survey. Um, and 49% of the respondents who answered the Kansas Speak survey did say that they had a gun in their home. And so we're not talking about people taking the survey who are anti-gun. Almost a majority of them, or about half of them, own a gun themselves. Um, and we still saw overwhelming support for most of the 10 gun control measures that we asked about. And Michael Smith, peel back the onion on a couple findings that you think are interesting. First of all, going into an election in a few weeks, the huge gap between approval for Governor Kelly and approval for President Biden. I think it's uh, around 20 points, maybe a tad lower, um, that um, we've seen all these commercials trying to tie Governor Kelly and other Democrats to President Biden. Don't know about the other Democrats, but clearly there's some evidence that Governor Kelly's um, plan uh, to portray herself as a Kansas Democrat, which is basically an independent uh, and a moderate, not tied to the uh, National Democratic Party, this survey would indicate that it is working, that Laura Kelly is Laura Kelly and she is not necessarily associated with President Biden or other National Democrats. So I thought that was interesting, especially the size of the gap in public approval really struck me. The other thing that struck me is um, I, I love I love Kansas Speaks. I love these real meaty public opinion polls. So many journalists um, try to misuse public opinion polls to do things like predict who's going to win an election and report on the horse race. And we political scientists and sociologists know that public opinion polls are best when they really drill down into the dynamics of public opinion. They weren't designed to to uh, handicap horse races. And we also know, and we've known since before any of us were born, that most Americans just don't forget, fit into our nice little boxes of liberal and conservative. And a really good example of that is the gap between the public opinion poll on transgender girls uh, playing on girls' sports teams and the opinion on books in school libraries. Now, the conventional wisdom, of course, tells us that liberals support transgender girls playing on girls' sports teams and keeping the books in the libraries, and conservatives are the reverse. Take the books out and keep the transgender girls off the girls' sports teams. But Kansans went opposite directions. 
there's a rather large majority that believes that that kids and, and young adults playing on sports teams should correspond to their sex assigned at birth, which you could call the conservative position. But then when they ask the questions about taking books out of the school library, and this one really grabbed me, Sherman, even elementary schools, elementary schools, most Kansans do not support taking controversial books out of the school library. And when you move up through middle school and into high school, it's a very small number. I think it was only about 15 point some percent that wanted to take books out of the high school library. So, again, just a great reminder that we like to put politics in these liberal conservative boxes, but that's not how voters think. They see those two issues as separate and they have different opinions on them. Brett, skipping back to you, tell us where someone could go online at Fort Hayes State to read details of this survey. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, they can just go to uh, fhsu.edu slash docking, and there they will just scroll down and find Kansas Speaks. Once they click on the uh, Learn More button, they'll have access to all of our uh, year's reports. Okay, excellent. I do have a couple of questions about motivations of voters at this time of year, just before the November election. Anybody can jump in and answer this, but I was wondering whether you think this general election will draw back to the polls voters loyal to former President Donald Trump, as well as the pro-choice voters who rejected in August the proposed amendment to the Kansas Constitution that threatened abortion rights. Patrick Miller of KU, please go first. I mean, I, I would just say that I think by all of the indicators that we see from Kansas and across the board that, um, I mean, this may well be a relatively high turnout election, probably not the highest we've seen. I believe 2018 might be, have been the record for the highest turnout post-World War II. 2014 was actually the lowest turnout nationally in a midterm since World War II. Um We'll have to see how that pans out. And, you know, that turnout may well be across the board. It may be concentrated more in certain areas. Uh, you know, we have very few states that have had elections since 2020. Virginia and New Jersey were one of them. And they generally saw um, quite healthy turnout across the board, a little more in some areas than others, more drop off, particularly among young and minority voters. Um than other demographics. So we'll have to see how that pans out. It could well be that those strong partisans on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, you know, when we speak about the strong, strongest Trump supporters, we're really often speaking about the strongest Republicans. And if we, we, when we think about the, those who are most avidly anti-Trump, we're usually thinking about the strongest Democrats. Those attitudes about Trump are typically just an expression of how strongly we root for our party teams. Um, I'm sure those, those, those voters will be back in large numbers this year. Um, the question about the amendment turnout will be quite interesting, especially with the number of first time voters that we saw voting, um, on that referendum. Uh, and here, you know, I think I'm particularly thinking about people like my, my students, my younger students, my, my, my first time voters who might have voted in August. Um, younger people are more likely to drop out of the electorate in a midterm election, um, but yet many of them showed up for that amendment vote. Um, and that's not something I think we have any good data to handicap or predict that. Um, but I think that will be an important thing to look at that may have margins and impact on who wins a race like governor. Alexandra, Wichita State, go ahead, please. I would echo what Patrick um, just mentioned, but also add that 
We know that when people show up for an election, they're more likely to show up in future elections because they now have more familiarity with the political system, how to go through that process of voting. So we did have a lot of first-time voters in August, um, which tracks with the high voter registration we saw throughout the summer. Um, and so those people are more likely to vote in this November election because they have voted before. Um, but to echo what Patrick said, there are a lot of first-time voters. There's a lot of women. Um, there was a large Hispanic turnout. Um, and a lot of young people turn out in the August primary. And a lot of those people were voting for the first time. And so statistically, they're more likely to vote again because they've already voted once. But abortion is not directly on the ballot. Um, you are now taking those opinions that people have about a specific issue and trying to translate them into partisan and candidate politics. And it's not a one to one matchup. So we really don't know how this is going to turn out. And we won't know until people show up on Election Day. And Michael Smith of Emporia State, your thoughts on this? Um, Well, I agree with Patrick and Alex. Um, One thing that is interesting about the vote this August is that it turned out a lot more younger voters than we typically see in an August election. And everybody has been uh, trying to get younger voters to vote for decades. I remember the MTV Rock the Vote campaign back in the 1990s. But the effect of these things has, I think, usually been pretty marginal. Um, it seems like the abortion rights issue, possibly student loan debt forgiveness too, maybe, but certainly the abortion rights issue really turned out younger voters. And like Alex was saying, um, having voted once, you're more likely to vote again. On the other hand, uh, that can also drop off. So one of the things to really watch, I think, is turnout among younger voters this year, especially because midterm, if, if they do turn out, they tend to turn out in presidential elections, like in 2008 when there was a wave for uh, Barack Obama. But this is a midterm election. Will those younger voters continue to vote in higher numbers than previous generations? My second question is about the propensity of candidates or organizations to drop an October surprise on rivals late in an election cycle. Recently, Attorney General Derek Schmidt's campaign falsely claimed the administration of Governor Laura Kelly helped pay for an art event that included a drag show in Wichita. It's totally false. It's utter fiction. Still, Schmidt's allies are pushing it on social media. Do you guys think this kind of appeal, which feels like a desperate gambit, resonates with voters? Patrick, what do you think? I think to understand a question like that, we have to understand oftentimes who are the voters who are undecided at the end of a campaign. Um, when we, most voters make up their mind very early in a campaign, and that is just figuring out who that candidate of their party is, and they're going to vote for that person, and party is the most important thing to them in an election. Um, and those voters tend to be more engaged politically. When we get to this point in a campaign, the kind of voter who is undecided typically pays less attention to campaigns, pays less attention to politics, knows less about the candidate, candidates, often cares less about politics and the candidates and issues. They're more likely to tell us they don't know what they feel about more issues because they're often not informed enough about issues to have those solid opinions. So I think campaigns have a tendency to trot out things like this at the end of a campaign because they often will get attention and hopefully break through to that person who is only casually or minimally paying attention. 
Um, you know, we're not the only election and this is not the only year where stuff like this, even if it is blatantly untrue, pops up late in the campaign. Um, so I think really something like that is often an attention grab to hopefully get some of those last minute voters who, you know, they're often more personality voters rather than issue voters. Um, and you really do have to work harder to get any of their attention. Mr. Smith, your thoughts about these last-minute attacks? Well, I think there are a couple things about it that are interesting. One is, just to build on what Patrick said, not only is he correct about undecided voters often being less informed, but there's another piece, too, which is that most undecided voters aren't 50-50 sitting on the fence. They're leaning heavily toward one candidate and waiting for that candidate to close the deal. Uh, so we're talking about pushing voters who are leaning in one direction off the fence onto your side and knowing that some of these so-called undecideds on the other side, you're, you're probably not going to win those unless something extraordinary happens, the so-called October surprise type stuff. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that ads like this are not going for the old school undecided voter who's in the middle. This is clearly red meat trying to turn out the Republican base. Um, and that is we're seeing more and more of that because there are fewer voters um, that are in the middle and there are still some. There is still some, but it's more about mobilizing your base. And the other piece we haven't talked about yet is although Dennis Pyle's third party candidate uh, candidacy probably won't get out of the single digits. If the race is extremely close, it could cost Derek Schmidt just enough votes to cost him the election. And so he may be trying to shore up those votes also, or the independent group spending money on his behalf. Okay, Alexander, we'll give you the final word. Yeah, I would just echo what Patrick and um, Michael said. And this is, you know, going to affect very few independent or undecided voters. It's really about convincing his own base to show up and vote um, for Republicans who would vote for him anyways, but are maybe not sure they're going to vote at all. Something like this is going to get those people out to the polls, potentially. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to our guests on the Kansas Reflector podcast, Brett Zollinger and Jen Sun of the Docking Institute at Fort Hayes State, Alexandra Middlewood of Wichita State, Michael Smith of Emporia State and Patrick Miller of the University of Kansas. Thanks for working on the Kansas Speaks survey and appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you.